Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. In this episode, I sit down with Frank Lonardelli, founder and CEO of Arlington Street Investments. Frank is a sharp businessman, having built a portfolio of real estate assets well into the hundreds of millions of dollars. As well as having an exceptional eye for deals and detail, Frank is a powerful storyteller. He has the ability to paint a vivid picture of situations and opportunities, which has surely worked in his favor when financing his projects. We discuss his main focus right now, the redevelopment of 17th Avenue in Calgary, Alberta. He's bought up dozens of properties along 17th, with a focus on reshaping Calgary's inner city. I thought we'd drill down on some of the hard skills of how he structures and finances his projects. But as well, Frank shared some interesting points about the application of soft skills in creating good deals. For those interested in financing real estate projects, this is a special episode worth listening to. Please excuse the sound quality as we had to rely on the backup mic. Otherwise, enjoy the show. Frank, how are you? Fantastic. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. So one of the things I admire is, is Arlington Street. It comes with a story. You named it Arlington. Why did you name it Arlington Street Investments? Well, I grew up on a street called Arlington Street, uh, uh, to be specific, 171 Arlington Street. And um, this was a first-generation downtown location, happened to be in Winnipeg, Manitoba, um, where pretty much we were surrounded by first-generation immigrants from 1950s wave of European immigrants who came over from Italy, Greece, Portugal. Um, and um, uh, it was a really interesting upbringing. So I grew up in this environment. Uh, there were no social nets whatsoever. Um, so we kind of lived in this environment where I called a no-excuse environment which meant that you just got up every day, you tried as fast as you possibly could, and you never, ever made excuses about why you couldn't do something. And um, that's kind of how life started. The, 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 the area changed quite a bit over the decade that I lived there um, and from a, from a demographic perspective. Of course, what happened with the story of most first-generation immigrants is they came here with nothing and they started making some money and then they moved out to these power centers. If you remember, power centers weren't around in the 50s and 60s and then they became the suburban explosion of where people moved their houses into. And so the immigrants gained some affluence and then moved out to the downtown core. But what happened was with the downtown core, which is where Arlington Street was, is they became rotten and they were filled in with really challenged demographics. And so Arlington Street became the uh, murder capital of Canada for almost a decade. So half of my life was learning about hard work, um, very clear ethics, and keeping your head up and moving forward. And then the other uh, uh, half of the time that I was growing up there was about surviving and being able to see the bend in the road because every day I went to school, there was something that was going to happen. And um, so it was a very dynamic upbringing, and uh, it brought a lot of um, grounding and learnings and appreciation for what I had uh, growing up. From, from a starting point there to what Arlington Street is now, I mean, your Arlington Street, 
can you quantify what you've built now from a real estate side? Um, you talk about mathematics? Mathematics, square footage, yeah. value, uh, whatever, however you can paint a picture of, of what you've built now from, from where you started. Well, there's a demarcation line, right? So let's talk about the start. Um, so Arlington Street Investments has been my private holding company since I was 27 years old when I did my first transaction. Um, but I've been doing real estate part-time for 18 years. When I decided six years ago to, as we say in the, in the world of business, monetize all my learnings, um, I created Arlington Street Investments, which became my full-time job, which became the full-time enterprise and corporation that I spent all my time and energy. And the goal of the company is really simple. Number one, it was going to focus on urban development. So we were going to do urban mixed-use developments in the core of Calgary. Um, but we were also going to go to other geographies in Canada and then into the U.S. within a five to seven year period of time. Um, we started with no assets. Uh, I had a goal of having 250 to $300 million in assets secured within the first five years. And because we're not a buy and hold company, those assets that we were securing were purchased to assemble. So non-assembled assets. Um, which are just buildings that are all beside each other to become assembled, to change land use, and then to build vertical density, mixed-use development. So you take four or five low-rise buildings, you purchase them, you change land use, you knock them down, and you build mixed-use developments five, seven, 17 stories up. Um, so the enterprise value uh, goes from $250 million in in-place fair market value to a billion dollars in post-enterprise value. That was our five-year goal. We got that three and a half years into the program. So right now we've got a little over $275 million in fair market value assets with a market value post-development of about $1.3 billion. What amazing three years. Yeah. As I recall, you started off, you, you were a business owner before, before you got into real estate. Right. What were some of the dealings you did early on and that what got you ultimately into real estate? Well, I mean, I always knew I was going to get into real estate in some way, shape, or form. I was fascinated with real estate. Um, my first fascination with real estate was the real estate that I was going to buy when I became affluent. Mm -hmm. So there's a street which is the polar opposite or the antithetical street of Arlington Street when I grew up called Wellington Crescent in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And Wellington Crescent was where Izzy Asper um, had a home from Canvas Global. Um, and a number of the affluent people in the Winnipeg marketplace. And so these were, you know, um, 10 to 25,000 square foot homes that were worth at the time millions of dollars. And so I always had a real fascination for real estate, uh, valued real estate, how much real estate costs, what taxes were, could you create appreciation in different assets? And, um, so I, uh, uh knew that I was going to end up kind of spending all my time in the real estate business. But my first business was a food services company. Um, and, and, I, and I would tell you this because I've said this to everybody. Two greatest experiences I've ever had as an uh, entrepreneur is working in a restaurant, which was my mom's restaurant. Uh, because as you know, uh, a restaurant has every aspect of business. And you would actually have to execute every aspect of that business perfectly daily. Because if you don't, especially in a competitive city like Winnipeg, you die. So we had this Italian restaurant called Vesuvio, and by the time I was eight years old, I was either scrubbing floors or pouring water or doing something in that restaurant. Um, so that was an amazing experience. The second 
amazing experience I had was when I left law school and I started my first company, before I started that first company, I worked for a sales organization. Now, they called themselves uh, an alarm company, so they literally sold alarms door-to-door. But really, the engine of that organization was a direct selling company. So I learned everything about direct sales. And you can appreciate, if you've never sold anything in your life, uh, having an alarm kit, which is what I had to carry with me, and knocking on someone's door to then try to convince them to buy an alarm that had a value that was five times more than the same market competitor in Winnipeg, Manitoba, the wholesale capital of Canada, um, you had to know how to sell. And so I had this amazing experience of being thrown into this organization, knowing nothing about sales and being taught by masters of sales, how to sell, how to connect with people, how to overcome objections, how not to create objections. Um, and that taught me that, you know, if I knew how to sell, which was really capturing um, the needs and wants of the person that I was connecting with, that I could really kind of write my own ticket. And those are the two things that really kind of propelled all of my business experiences moving forward. When you take that experience and you apply it to the real estate business you have now, surely every deal that you've done hasn't been a home run. And, you know, if we're to focus somewhat maybe on the finance side of it, some of the finance experiences, what's been your, what's been your favorite failure? I don't think I've any, have had any failures. Uh, I think failure is, is, is learning experience and dropping out of business. That's failure to me. I think that, you know, if you're pushing yourself, you're going to learn some very, very valuable lessons. Now, they may cost you a bunch of money, um, but to me, that's the investment portion. You know, if you want to get a PhD, it'll cost you a quarter million dollars too. And a PhD in business sometimes costs, costs millions of dollars. So I haven't any failures, but in, in terms of, you know, your question around, uh, I haven't, you know, no, not everybody hits home runs all the time. First of all, our, our thesis is always ground rule doubles. So I'm interested in hitting ground rule doubles every time I get on the plate. That's my most important. And what is a ground rule double? Number one, we never lose money. And I have never lost a dollar of equity since I started this company. So that is the most important thing. You know, Warren Buffett calls it the golden rule, right? Golden rule number one, don't lose original equity. Golden rule number two, don't ever forget golden rule number one. So when you grow up with no money, uh, you learn that never losing that money is what you should cover. And if you do that, it tends to de-risk a lot of the exposure on the upside. Um, but in terms of not hitting the ground rule doubles, and we've certainly hit a bunch of home runs, um, I would just say to you that I think the learning has been don't ever try to predict the unpredictable. Do you have an example or examples of it? Well, I think the simple example is, is that if you choose the profession that I'm in, which is development, and you decide to do development in a city like Calgary, which is, I would tell you, the most unforgiving city. I'm not talking about Canada. I'm talking about North America to do development. You better be prepared for the worst. Um, because what ends up happening, if you think about, you know, go back and look at a trend line. From 1960, we've had eight peak to trough energy cycles, uh, peaks being $146 a barrel, troughs being $26 a barrel. And so you can never time that peak to trough cycle that runs five to seven years. In other words, if you're building into a bull market at $146 a barrel oil and all the factors are going for, for you on the revenue side, you're going to get killed on the cost side. 
because you have a shortage of trades, materials have increased, and that becomes a real challenge. So though you may be over-exceeding your revenue targets, like for example, if you're selling condos, you sell them for more. If you're leasing out retail space like we do, we're going to lease them out for more because people are bullish. But if you're building that building, your cost may exceed those gains during that period of time. The opposite exists in the down market, where you can actually have great trade exposure, you can have wonderful pricing, but you can't lock in the revenue because people are insecure about doing lease deals, opening restaurants. They're insecure about buying new condos because of what's happening in the marketplace there. Uh, commercial office goes to 30% vacancies like we had in Calgary and have in Calgary with 18 million square feet available. So I would say that um, we, I think, took a couple of pretty sure bets on where we thought the market would go, and we didn't predict or benchmark what we would do if it went as dramatic as it has on the downside. And so those are some of the learning experiences we've had moving forward, and certainly some of the things we think about all the time before we project into a new project. I want to jump ahead to, to the move you made on 17th. It's a bold one, to say the least. Mm. You've brought in financing partners. You've gone and uh, snapped up a, a bunch of assets. And what's the story behind that? And and let's after that, I want to get into how did you get those deals done? Because this is not an easy environment. Yeah. So I think the interesting part for us was to do something that no one had ever done. And I had great experience taking buildings in that were located within the path of growth that were old and tired and needed someone to come in and give them some TLC, um, taking those assets, converting them and putting new tenants into them and having some great gains. Um, you couldn't do that on 17th Avenue. Um, 17th Avenue is a series of fragmented assets in the highest profile street. I call it the four blocks of 17th being the cool street or what we refer to as the high street, the place that all the retail goes to, especially food and beverage and has the highest pedestrian traffic. In the intersection we are in right now, 17th and 5th, 17th and 5th is the highest pedestrian traffic and highest traffic in terms of cars going through the intersection anywhere in the downtown core of Beltline. Um, and so we wanted to pick not only profile assets, but we wanted to pick and control entire intersections. So that was the bold aspects of the uh, way, about, uh, way in which we were looking at the, the business plan. The business plan called for securing eight different development sites, purchasing between 40 and 50 buildings within a three-year period of time, uh, assembling them, changing land use, and then going into construction. Um, so that was the business plan, and that's what we executed. That links back to our earlier discussion of the, the two to $300 million in fair market value. Which, how did you do that? Well, we picked the assets we wanted to go after, first of all. And we did something that most people never do. Uh, we went completely non-brokered. Uh, the team contacted a lot of the owners, the existing landowners. Um, but I personally met with the landowners and um, introduced myself, told them why I was interested in buying their buildings completely transparently. I actually told them my vision of the street, which they actually connected to, and um, moved through a process to gain their trust. Um, provided a fair uh, price uh, and transacted accordingly. Now, now here's the interesting thing. Uh, when you talk about um, authenticity, that sounds not easy, but somewhat simple. 
one of the things we knew going in is if we ever um, deceived, if we ever told a lie, if we ever played a game with any one of the purchasers, because, and, and I'll, I'll get to the, to, the, to the end of this in a second, understand that every single purchaser I've purchased from falls within three very interesting categories. Age. Their average age is 70 to 75 years old. They've owned their building for over 25 years. And they would have a five to 10,000% gain on their original purchase price. Which sounds really cool when we're sitting down in terms of being investment guys. Wow, 5,000% return on my money. It scared the crap out of these people. And I knew that going in because these people were my mom and dad who had nothing when they came to Winnipeg and, and, and bought their first $24,000 house in Arlington Street. They had nothing. And at their age, what would they do with these millions of dollars that a guy like me who looks all sophisticated with a fancy suit and knows how to talk properly, what would they do with it? That was terrifying to them. So I also had to understand how to deal with that because they were the idea of buyer's remorse, they had seller's remorse, but not because they were they were upset about losing their built their, their their building, but something almost bizarre to think about. They were scared with the money. They were scared about what they would have to do with that money, the burden they would leave on their kids, and how to deal with the trust issues and all that kind of stuff. So what I like to tell people, and I said this at the Calgary Real Estate Forum when they asked me this question, how were you able to go out on a non-broker basis and buy all these assets that everybody else wanted to buy them for? And I said, uh, I think the thing that we were able to do that people couldn't do up to that point was we met people where they lived. Because I was them. They were my parents. So I knew what they needed to hear. I knew how they needed to be dealt with. And, and more importantly, I knew what we couldn't do with them. And so that was the integrity that we brought into the process. And, um, and, and the other beautiful thing that happened is everyone knew each other. You know, when you own this many buildings within a four block radius, you do the first transaction. Remember the old word of mouth? They tell everybody. I wasn't sure about this guy. And then I got to know him and he told me what he was going to do. And he did what he said. And that's all those sellers needed to know for us to have an entryway to go in and do these transactions that no one else was able to secure prior to us coming there. I commend you for what you did, but it doesn't sound like there's more to it than that. No, there isn't. And I think we've complicated it. You know, we get our post-secondary degrees and we read all the books and we think it's really technically difficult to execute on success. And when we talk about success, we're talking about dollars and cents because that's the business we're in. The other part of success is the legacy piece of what we're going we're gonna, to uh, buy, build, and create. Let me suggest this to you that I think is um, something important based on what it is you, you do for a living and, and what we do for a living. You know, so, so our business is all about people and, and the idea about integrity about what you say and what you're going to do. Th those, those sellers needed to know that I was going to do exactly the thing I said I was going to do. There weren't going to be games, no silly buggers, no delays, nothing. One of the great learnings I've had as a business person, I think we screw this up all the time, is that we try to find and we try to hire winners. You know what a winner looks like, right? You get a CV, you get a resume, and 
you know, he's got all these gold medals or she's got all these gold medals. She worked with these Fortune 500 companies. She was a star athlete. She was this or he was that or what the case may be. I don't try to find winners because that's the table stake. I try to find people who cannot stand to lose. And those are the people, when I used to invest in people's companies, I had to believe he technically or she technically knew their business or their product or their scope of work better than I could ever possibly imagine. So how would I try to drill down on whether or not I felt that person was competent? That didn't seem to make a lot of sense to me. I wanted to find somebody who had a psychological profile who just could not stand to lose. So we say this all the time in our office. If you walk around and people are just kind of like looking like they're happy and you know everything's good, they're not jumping up and down and we're not having bonfires, they're, we're probably winning. But if you walk into this office, because that's a normal state, right? I expect to win, right? What you will see if we're losing in this office is you will feel something very different. There's a, a serious intensity. There is a, we got to get in a room and figure something out. And it doesn't matter if it's calling up your wife or your kids and saying, sorry, honey, I'm not coming home tonight because we've got to solve a problem. It, that's really this whole kind of functionality. And that's at the foundation of everything we're talking about. Because you can appreciate that I had to raise a ton of money in a very short period of time. When people decide to sell a piece of real estate that they have owned for 30 to 40 years, they're like, okay, here's a deal and I want it in 30 days. So acquiring that capital quickly was also about going to people that trusted me, who've done business with me for a long period of time, that knew that when I said, here's what we're going to buy, here's where we're going to go with it, here's what we're going to do. They knew that I was the kind of guy, regardless of where the market was, that I would stay up all night, every night if I had to, to ensure that we executed on what we said we we're going to do. Can we get into how you finance these deals? What those structures look like? What the, perhaps the economics of these deals? That what were some of the finer details of how you were to raise that money and ultimately execute in thirty days? Right. Um, so the. Um, you know, classic structure we've used since I was 26 is the GPLP structure. I am the general partner of every living partnership. We've decided not to pool our assets. We've decided to keep them and hide them off individually under a special purpose vehicle. So, um, for example, we're building a 48-unit condominium across the street called the 5th with 13,000 square feet of main floor retail. Um, that is the um, National Block Partnership 2. Uh, where I'll be the general partner. So what does a general partner do? Um, notwithstanding the legal responsibility, um, I take all the debt risk. So my name, my personal guarantee, my corporate guarantee is on every debt financing we do in every project. So um, I always tell my partners, if we're raising $10 million, my downside is probably double that. So you can imagine if we're building a $40 million building, I got a $30 million construction financing facility. So the investors may put in $10 million, but I have to sign my name on the construction financing facility. Um, and so not only can I lose my equity, but I could lose a lot more because I had to cut a check after that. I say goodbye to that original equity. So my investors, and it's always been the case um, where we've structured it that way. So generally speaking, I always put my, we always put capital in. Uh, we always take the largest position and we always take the debt risk. Uh, and generally speaking, we always get paid last. Um, what we're toying with now, and I use that term um, seriously, has been the end result of our success. So that structure has worked very, very well 
but we now have 14 limited partnerships. I operate like a reporting issuer. I provide quarterly updates. I have annual AGMs in my office here. So you can imagine over a course of a month doing 14 to 16 AGMs and the prep time and the administrative time. Um, it gets a bit bewildering. So last year I told all my partners that I probably would not have the same structure moving into 2019. So we're looking at um, collapsing all the limited partnerships into a master limited partnership. And the beautiful part about our structure is, is that if you looked at my investor base, they're all multiple investors and multiple projects anyway. It, it also provides them an opportunity to say, well, I'll be a part of the hotel across from Tompkins Park, as well as I'll do the mixed-use development um, on 5th, as well as I'll do you know, the master plan development on 14th, and I'll have a piece of this entire pie. So we're moving through that process right now. We've uh, soft-sold it to our investors. They've all said, yeah, well, we're perfectly happy doing that. And it'll allow me to have one investor group, one project, one reporting metrics, and it'll also allow me, which is what I've told our investors has been my biggest risk, is to gain back the time I've lost to continually grow the business. Because we're just on step one of five steps in the future of the company. From the limited partnership or the, the GPLP structures, I've heard but, but can't articulate the changes from a, a tax standpoint. Have there been changes there? And, and what are some of the perhaps pitfalls or what are some of the, the gotchas that come with structuring a GPLP? I'd say it's the most efficient tax preferred structure um, that you can adopt. Um, I'll give you the technical answer from a taxation structure as we move forward. Um, but I think that um, in terms of um, one of the aspects of how we've operated our company is, is that one of the first things we want to do is we want to repatriate the original capital. Uh, so as you repatriate the original capital, you buy an asset, you bring in the, private, the equity partners in, uh, you stabilize it, you upward refinance to get the original capital out. It's a very efficient way of getting that capital back out to the clients so they get 100 cents back into their pockets. And now they're really playing with the house's money. And because they get dividend or distribution income, it's taxed differently than personal capital gains. Now, when you roll up or wind up uh, the company in the event of a liquidation, um, if we sell the business, then the partnership is taxed at the partnership level and then issued at um, sorry, through the GP level at the corporation, and then it's issued out to the limited partners. So a limited partnership has a structure that allows for uh, very long um, distributions or deferred income implications. Um, and, and, and from my perspective, it's the most efficient uh, corporate structure for a company that does what we do for a living. And if we were to look at Fifth Avenue, sorry, the, 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 the Fifth. The Fifth. Yeah. Yeah, excuse me. Very original naming conventions. It's on Fifth, <laughs> so we call it the Fifth. I like it. Yeah. That building there, I understand, is about potentially a $40 million build. Yeah. And as a GPL, you came in with your own capital. Uh, what does that look like when you go through the paces of the construction financing? Uh, is it tranched out? Um, that's obviously under the, the entity of the GP or the LP. When the project's completed, everything's sold, then what? Does it, is it liquidated or who owns that real estate uh, or the, the commercial real estate or what happens there? What's that look like? Yeah, so, so first of all, we're going after assembly assets or assets we want to assemble. Um, we, we use our own money. So we'll pick three or four buildings and we'll negotiate and then we'll get all four of these 
bit of a trick to it. It takes a lot of energy. But we'll get all four people to allow us to uh, transact coterminously. Um, so we'll say, okay, we'll close in 120 days, and we'll have all the capital, and then we'll close and place them into a limited partnership at that point. Can we drive down a little bit on sure. that? Just a little bit more clarity on that. In essence, you, you paper it up so everyone... All the same terms? Let's go back to the original premise, is that uh, there's no room in, in, in lies if you're doing the type of transactions we do, because all the neighbors are going to talk to each other about right. what kind of deal they got. So it starts with the truth, which is the only reason why I'm buying your building is if I can buy the other three buildings next to you. And the reason I want to do that is because I want to build this building. And then I'll literally show them a renter. And I'll say the premium that I can pay for your land based on buying or building this building would be X. And you can't get it by just selling your, your building on an income basis, right? Because there's two ways to value real estate. One is on the income approach. You have a 10,000 square foot building. It kicks out $100,000 a year. It's got a cap rate to it. It's valued at X. But if you're building, which means you're creating additional density, then I'm actually buying land that has way more value as I go higher. And are you, to the to the degree of transparency, do you share pretty much a per square foot basis with yes. everybody across the board, every house? Absolutely. Say, I can pay you this. And everybody knows. Because they're going to call a broker and they're going to see if I'm lying to them. Because what I say to them, Corey, is I say, I'm your highest and best exit. Not some guy who's going to buy your building to own it because he wants one little building. I'm your highest and best exit. But if I can't get all four of you, because I also need them to work with me to convince the other people if I need a little bit of support. That hasn't happened very often, but it has happened a few times, and they have been instrumental in getting those assemblies done because now they put pressure on the other people. And for clarity, every one of them knows how much each other is selling a business for. Absolutely. The, the building. Yeah, the building. The building. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty transparent. And, and again, this is not what you learn in brokerage school, right? So... And I have a lot of friends that I respect them dearly, but they, they don't teach you that at brokerage school. And they would actually teach you not to do that because people think that maintaining secrecy in the negotiation is coy. I think it's it's deadly. It's a it's an interesting way. I've never. I mean, like you said, they've never teach us in brokerage school. Right. So brilliant. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you a cute example. We bought some of the most valuable real estate on the corner of 50th and Elbow in the intersections of Bel Air, Britannia, Elboy, and Windsor, some of the most affluent areas right across the Calgary Golf and Country Club. And we had a beautiful assembled site on the intersection. It had a story. There was a contamination across the other side of the street. We went on buy that asset. That got cleaned up, so we assembled the entire site, nine separate parcels. And um, the dry cleaner, and dry cleaners were notorious for leaking back in the 70s and 80s, um, a, a product called uh, Perk. And perk is called tetraperchylate, and it's what the dry cleaners used to use to get our shirts all starchy, right? Um, but they would be, they'd take this, this perk and they would sit in these holding containers, and the holding containers would then leak into the ground, creating contamination. Perk is a nasty contaminant. There's lots of contaminants, um, like hydrocarbons. Um, but perk was nasty because it goes north, south, east, and west. So once it gets to the ground, it's really hard to mitigate, right? It's hard to fence it around. So when we negotiated that deal, we, we told all the other uh, sellers that we thought fairly confidently that their sites were contaminated, to which they looked at us and said, absolutely not. They're not contaminated. 
But if you understand the length of time the contamination was happening at this dry cleaner and how that chemical moves, you know, we felt pretty confident about it. So we said, okay, well, here's the deal. We'll spend $250,000 to drill the entire site. And here's what we'll pay for the asset if it's contaminated. And here's what we'll pay for it if it's not. And they all agreed to it. And so we took all the testing results and we put them up on a Dropbox and we gave everyone access to it. And it worked out for everybody, completely transparent. Um, they all got a good price point, but they also knew why we were pricing it the way we were pricing it. Because you, when you develop and you dig up that soil, you have to deal with that contaminated soil differently than non-contaminated soil. So uh, again, this goes back to a way in which, and, and no one does it. I, I have told friends in the development business, how did you get that deal done? And I told them, you're nuts. And I, it, it just has worked very well for us. Hmm. The secret weapon of transparency, but it's not a weapon at all. Just tell the truth. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have thought? No kidding. So I understand you recently sold uh, one of your big assets to First Capital, uh, FCR on the TSX. I think there's an interesting story behind that. The fun part was we had a great exit, which is kind of why we, why we do these transactions, right? But um, let's talk about going in. Okay. Um, we bought that asset in 2009. It was really well located. We felt in the design district, which is 10th and 7th, uh, the Southwest Corridor, uh, about a block away from Mountain Equipment Co-op. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of redensification happening within that area. There was a lot of developers going in and assembling assets on, on the open market uh, through the brokerage community. And um, the market did what every Winnipegger hopes it does, which is it blew up. So we were trading at $140 a barrel of oil, and in 2000, we went off the cliff. Global financial crisis, the CNBS market in the U.S., um, and the market traded down to $26 a barrel of oil. Uh, vacancies before the, the rollover were 0% in the marketplace, and um, they went to almost 22% in the commercial office space. So about 10 million square feet opened up, which is devastating in commercial office. So what, is, what happens in a market like that is people get very fearful and they just sit on their hands. And we got extremely aggressive and tried to, tried to buy some distress. And so this was a great asset. It was, it was a 26,000 square foot building. Uh, we call it Haiku because the developer was going in to buy the building to knock it down to build a 26 story tower called Haiku. Uh, had already built the designs. I spent a million and a half dollars, really beautiful development. Um, the market collapsed. Of course, the condo owners disappeared. He was in four projects just like that. And I called him before he went into receivership. And they are extremely classy developers. And I said, look, uh, I want to buy your building. Here's what I think it's worth. Um, and we negotiated a deal. And we were the only transaction, we bought two other buildings at the same time, but we were the only transaction in 2009 of that asset class in almost a full year. Uh, my only regret is we didn't have more money to buy more assets. Um, but basically, what did we do? We bought a building that was empty, um, that we could reposition, so we would gut it and put new systems in, mechanical, bring in new tenants, stabilize it. When the market corrected, we would then go knock it down, potentially build that haiku building because I had the plans for it. So I thought that was a great opportunity. And we bought it below replacement cost. So we sat on that asset. Uh, we stabilized it. It's got one of the best restaurants in the city, which is Bridget, which is owned by the uh, Concord Group. 
Well, national and double zero and, and a lot of other different uh, pro, uh, properties. And, uh, and so, uh, we had an unsolicited offer, uh, from two or three companies. Um, cap rates compressing in the retail marketplace. Um, cap rates were about five and a quarter when we were buying the asset to five and a half. They're compressed down to, down to four. Some are three, seven, five. Um, so we bought the asset, repositioned the asset, repatriated all the money to the investors within the first two years. Um, and then sold it for a 480% cash on cash return. And I, I can tell you there's a couple things that happens when I sell an asset. Uh, the first thing is I go through this euphoric phase of taking on all my partners to dinner. And it's a, it's a thing that I do all the time. And I actually literally hand deliver the checks to them. And, and, and most of these guys, actually to the person, they're all my friends on that transaction. Very, very good friends, not just investor friends. Um, so I get, I get a lot of enjoyment out of that. And then I go into a bit of a depression for about five or six minutes. Because uh, I have a hard time selling. I'm, I'm, I'm a buy side guy. Um, and I believe that you make all your money on the buy side, not on the sell side. So that's why our discipline of really buying correctly and buying the right assets at the right price point and being patient and being diligent has really served us well. Um, but that was a great transaction. And it worked out well for the investor. It worked out well for us. And it's going to work out fantastically for First Capital. First Capital is an extremely classy organization. They're going to knock that building down. They're going to redensify that entire area. It's going to be great for the city and the community. I came in aiming for for a bit of a technical finance talk. (laughs) What I'm leaving with here, and I think we're all going to be leaving with, is an expertise in how you approach the soft side of real estate and soft side of finance. The subtleties of sitting down and having a one-on-one conversation, unbrokered with the people and in sharing the vision of what you want to do. I mean, it's, it's the art of it, right? Not to quote Donald Trump, but the art of the deal. Yeah, there's, look, I mean, at the end of the day, we, we've got to put the financial structures together that are aligned with our partners' interest in placing capital. Right. So to me, it's actually a market function. It's I, I don't really control it, right? There's, there, there's certain debt service ratios. There's certain amounts of equity. There's certain return expectations that I got to check those boxes. But... To think that I'm putting that together, I'm, I'm, I'm beholden to my partners on that side of it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. The beautiful part about where we are as a company is, is that I can, I certainly can, uh, can throw my weight around now and say no. Right. Um, but, uh, but I'm also respectful around that aspect too, right? Where do you think the future of real estate is going? And not by price, not by valuation, but with the world of technology, with the new generations coming with changes in demographics. What's happening? Where, where do you see real estate going? Well, real estate is going to reflect all the major changes in this kind of shared economy that we're dealing with right now. And this really dramatic shift. We're probably both Xers. I'm a Gen Xer. Um, Gen Xers and baby boomers, we didn't disrupt anything. We really did. We just kind of like did more of the thing that the guy did before us. These millennials are going to change everything in retail. Um, I, I'll give you three meta changes. I said this at the Toronto Real Estate Forum and got into a ton of uh, poop from some guys who were in the room. Commercial real estate, if you own commercial real estate in the next 10 to 15 years, you better be really clear of what your exit's going to be because we will not need as much office space anywhere near as much office space across Canada. Pick a city, I don't care, as we do today. Um, 
the data centers that the big banks are creating for all their new employees will be hubs for the guys who are selling the products of the banks to show up once every month, twice a month, to have a conversation. Um, they'll do it in shared office spaces. We have a shared office company on our lower level. These are people who do not want to take on long-term leases and liabilities. So then where does that go on the investment side? Should we be building more commercial offices? No, that market's going to contract. It's going to contract dramatically. I'll give you another example. Uh, my friend's the largest private owner of car dealerships in Canada. And we're flying together on his plane to Palm Strings. And I'm saying, I understand you just took all your dealerships and put it into a REIT. Now, I know why he put them into a REIT, but I have to ask him rhetorically, why the heck would you put them into a REIT? Millennials are not going to go into car dealerships. They're not going to buy like me and you. I want to smell leather. I want to hear I want to hear the engine before I buy my car. My nephew, who's 21, doesn't care. Couldn't care less. So those dealerships, if they're well-located, will become high-rise towers to residential developments. Those dealerships will be wiped out uh, to the extent that they are in existence today in the next 20 to 30 years. And I think it's going to happen faster. The other market that's really shifted, so that's commercial office, um, um, a bit of retail. The other, the other market that's really going to shift is condos. Um, condos and apartments. Um, the millennials want to be close to many rich locations. That's why we're on 17th. Uh, they want to live, work, and play within the same one-mile radius, and they want to live, work, and play ideally within the same elevator stack. So I literally have to have great retailers on the main floor so the guy or girl can go down the elevator and go drop off his laundry, get a great beer, have a great you know gastro burger from a pub, uh, go to Amazon lockers that we're putting into one of our locations. Um, that's really going to shift things. The other thing is, from an apartment perspective, is um, that demographic's going to live in one half to one third of the apartments that me and you were renting out when we were in our 20s. By size? By size. The average apartment that I was renting back when people were building apartments was 1,000 to 1,500 square feet. The apartments we're building are five to 600 square feet. Uh, they love it if it's in the right location, it's got the amenities, it's got the squeaky cool things that they want, and it's close to all the things they want to be connected to. So those are the three big areas uh, that are going to shift in, in, in the marketplace. The, the thing that I'm really curious about is single-family homes. Me too. Yeah. I'm very curious about the world of suburbs. Uh, I, I, well, so if you take the largest trend in real estate, which is urbanization, a lot of the bedroom communities are going to come into a significant amount of pressure because more people are moving into the cities because of the amenities rich aspect of it. Um, but I also think the other thing that's happening is those big spanking mansions like in Calgary and Spring Bank and, and, and Elbow Valley and all that kind of stuff. Uh, people are moving out of that. My three neighbors, I live in the urban marketplace. Uh, my three neighbors sold on average eight to 12,000 square foot homes to living in 4,000 square foot homes in the urban marketplace and love it. So there's a real shift in demographics too. So the baby boomers and Xers are downsizing and shrinking. The millennials are shrinking and they're all coming into the city. So I think we've got a great future for urbanization, for uh, city centers, for cores, 
all beautiful things historically going back to the times of, of, of the Greek era uh, started in the city. Uh, that's where all the philosophers came from. That's where all the cities were grown. That's where all the, the vitality was. So I think we're coming, I think this new urbanism is these shrinking of the power centers and moving through. The last point I'll give you is this. Um, the, the power center business is dead. Big box stores are being shrunk to small box stores. Amazon has completely changed the way that people shop in that, in that space. And so all these things are going to happen in a quantum of time that'll sound like, feel like a millisecond. And it's happening right now. So, um, there'll be some big changes. As long as you're in front of that trend, you're going to do very, very, very well. If you're not, you're going to have some challenges. Before we wrap up, what would three points be that you'd leave for a real estate entrepreneur when it comes to building their portfolio, building their their assets? What kind of three points are those those tenets you stick to? Well, I think don't get caught in the story you think you need to tell. Okay. Just tell the right story, and the right story is the truth. So I'll tell you one of the laws that we have is that I will fire an investor if I think they don't have the same values as us. Which is sounds really cocky when you talk, start talking about you know trying to raise capital. And, and what I mean by that is this, is that a lot of times what happens is, especially in the, in the business of real estate, so when I raise capital, I'm still competing for someone's dollar. And, and I'm not there to compete in the shiny bauble category because I want to go to sleep at night I want to have a good life. I don't want people calling me and saying, you said this and you did that. I'm saying, we're going to buy the best assets at a price point that we think is better than anyone else can get. And we're going to build some tremendous assets and they're going to outperform the same sub-market at any given time over the long run. And if you're into that program, you should be investing with us. Um, I don't go in there and say, well, we're going to give you 18% IRR, we're going to double your money in five years. I'm like, that, that is not what I say. I certainly tell them what my return expectations are. But I'm telling them that the creation of wealth around real estate, this isn't a dot-com business or a technology business where you can take an idea and bring it in through concept phase and then get a bunch of venture capital guys to balloon the value up without having a dollar of revenue. Real estate has very tangential aspects of mathematics, right? A dollar per square foot of bricks and mortar is a dollar per square foot of bricks and mortar. A dollar square foot of land is a dollar square foot of land. You can't fudge that. So trying to tell people you're going to build a Valhalla play and give them a you know 400% return, that's not the way to do it. However, when we talk about how we get into deals on the buy side, we say we're going to be set up for some amazing exit. And, and here you go, you get a four or 500% return on, on an asset based on all those things happening. But that happened on the buy side, not on the sell side. Um, in terms of um, the other aspect of, of raising capital, I think you have to be compelling. This goes back to why would I invest in a building? I'm investing in the person who's building the building, right? The neat part about investors, so first of all, all my investors are high net worth, ultra high net worth or credit investors. They get pitched 100 times a day. They get emotionally connected to the things that we're buying and building. Why? Because I'm emotionally connected to things I'm buying and building. If I was, if there's no fidelity there, money doesn't come into into the office, right? Um, I think that's the, the the second thing I talk about is if you're not passionate, then the people who are placing the capital aren't passionate. I think the last piece to it is really about um, the aspect of the end result, right? 
you've been through my office. I've got about 400 investors. We have hundreds of millions of dollars in this company. Um, I don't have a um, investor relations department. Um, I had three calls last year from investors. Three. And that's a number that's important to me. And I have three calls because I send quarterly updates. I have AGMs and my clients are informed. Um, because one of the problems that people do is they, I hate the, you know, age long axiom. They over promise and they under deliver. And then what do entrepreneurs end up living every day? The stress of having to deal with opening their mouths in ways they should have never done to begin with. And trust me, 20 years ago, I was terrified taking the first dollar on my first deal from two people. I got $150,000 from two guys, one who happens to have invested in 13 subsequent projects and the other one who happens to be my brother-in-law. So you can imagine the stress that would cause. Um, I just, just, just don't lie. Just go in there and be conservative. Um, and I say, I say to everyone, you know, the new upside's flat. And if you think about it that way, as opposed to what you think you should be telling people, my guys don't need to gamble anymore. They've already made all their money. So they want to be connected to something cool with someone they respect, and they don't want any surprises. If you just do those three things, you're going to do just fine. Well, Frank, I want to, I want to thank you for your time. And as I mentioned earlier, that really insightful. So thanks a lot. Thanks for your time. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Thanks for coming over today. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.